I'm Peter Medic, and you're listening to Return of the Birds, the serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin by John Burroughs. Thank you for picking our podcast to listen to. We know there's a lot of choices, and I'm grateful for your time. And if you know somebody who might be feeling frazzled, frayed, or just about to lose it right now, perhaps you might recommend Return of the Birds to them. Maybe this silly podcast about birds might give that person you know a break from the stress and strain of staying at home. I want to give a special thank you to the women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I used over the course of this audiobook. You're doing selfless and important work, and it's appreciated. Thank you. The wood thrush is the handsomest species of this family. In grace and elegance of manner, he has no equal. Such a gentle hybrid air, and such inimitable ease and composure in his flight and movement. He's a poet in every word and deed. His carriage is music to the eye. His performance of the commonest act, as catching a beetle or picking a worm from the mud, pleases like a stroke of wit or eloquence. Was he a prince in the olden time, and do the regal grace and mane still adhere to him in his transformation? What a finely proportioned form! How plain yet rich his color! The bright russet of his back, the clear white of his breast, with the distinct heart-shaped spots. It may be objected to Robin, it is noisy and demonstrative. He hurries away or rises to a branch with an angry note and flirts his wings in ill-bred suspicion. The mavis, or red thrush, sneaks and skulks like a culprit, hiding in the densest alders. The catbird is a coquette and a flirt, as well as a sort of female Paul Pry. And the chewink shows his inhospitality by spying your movements. The wood thrush has none of these traits. He regards me unsuspiciously, or avoids me with a noble reserve. Or if I am quiet and incurious, graciously hops towards me, as if to pay his respects, or to make my acquaintance. I have passed under his nest within a few feet of his mate and brood, when he sat nearby on a branch, eyeing me sharply, but without opening his beak. But the moment I raised my hand toward his defenseless household, his anger and indignation were beautiful to behold. What a noble pride he has. Late one October, after his mates and companions had long since gone south, I'd noticed one for several successive days in the dense part of this next-door wood, flitting noiselessly about, very grave and silent, as if doing penance for some violation of the code of honor. By many gentle indirect approaches, I perceived that part of his tail feathers were undeveloped, the sylvan prince could not think of returning to court in his plight, and so, amid the falling leaves and cold rains of autumn, was patiently biding his time. 
The soft, mellow flute of the viri fills a place in the chorus of the woods. That the song of the Vesper Sparrow fills in the chorus of the fields. It has the nightingale's habit of singing in the twilight, as indeed have all our thrushes. Walk toward the forest in the warm twilight of a June day, and when fifty rods distant, you will hear their soft, reverberating notes rising from a dozen different throats. It is one of the simplest strains to be heard. As simple as the curve in form, delighting from the pure element of harmony and beauty it contains. And not from any novel or fantastic modulation of it. Thus contrasting strongly with such rollicking, hilarious songsters as the Bobolink, in whom we are chiefly pleased with the tintinnabulation, the verbal and labial elegance, and the evident conceit and delight of the performer. I hardly know whether I'm more pleased or annoyed with the catbird. Perhaps she's a little too common and her part in the general chorus a little too conspicuous. If you are listening for the note of another bird, she is sure to be prompted to the most loud and protracted singing. Drowning out all other sounds. If you sit quietly down to observe a favorite or study a newcomer, her curiosity knows no bounds, and you are scanned and ridiculed from every point of observation. She is the parodist of the woods, and there is ever a mischievous, bantering, half-ironical undertone in her lay. As if she were conscious of mimicking and disconcerting some envied songster. Ambitious of song, practicing and rehearsing in private, she yet seems the least sincere and genuine of the sylvan minstrels. As if she had taken up music only to be in fashion, or not to be outdone by the robins and thrushes. In other words, she seems to sing from some outward motive, and not from inward joyness. She's a good versifier, but not a great poet. Vigorous, rapid, copious, not without fine touches, but destitute of any high, serene melody. Her performance, like that of Thoreau's squirrel, always implies a spectator. There is a certain air and polish about her strain, however, like that in the vivacious conversation of a well-bred lady of the world that commands respect. Her maternal instinct also is very strong, and that simple structure of dead twigs and dried grass is the center of much anxious solicitude Not long since, while strolling through the woods, my attention was attracted to a small, densely grown swamp, hedged in with eglantine, brambles, and the everlasting Simlax. 
from which proceeded loud cries of distress and alarm, indicating that some terrible calamity was threatening my somber-colored minstrel. On effecting an entrance, which, however, was not accomplished till I had doffed coat and hat so as to diminish the surface exposed to the thorns and brambles, and looking around me from a square yard of terra firma, I found myself the spectator of a loathsome yet fascinating scene. Three or four yards from me was a nest, beneath which, in long festoons, rested a huge black snake. A bird, two-thirds grown, was slowly disappearing between his expanded jaws. As he seemed unconscious of my presence, I quietly observed the proceedings. By slow degrees, he compassed the bird, about with his elastic mouth, his head flattened, his neck writhed and swelled, and two or three undulatory movements of his glistening body finished the work. Then he cautiously raised himself up, his tongue flaming from his mouth while curved over the nest, and, with wavy, subtle motion, explored the interior. I can conceive of nothing more overpoweringly terrible to an unsuspecting family of birds than the sudden appearance above their domicile of the head and neck of this archenemy. It's enough to petrify the blood in their veins. Not finding the object of his search, he came streaming down from the nest to a lower limb and commenced extending his researches in other directions. Sliding stealthily through the branches, bent on capturing one of the parent birds. That a legless, wingless creature should move with such ease and rapidity where only birds and squirrels are considered at home? Lifting himself up, letting himself down, running out on some yielding bough, and traversing with marvelous celerity the whole length and breadth of the thicket was truly surprising. One thinks of the great myth of the tempter and the, quote, cause of all our woe, end quote, and wonders if the arch one is not now playing off some of his pranks before him. Whether we call it a snake or devil matters little. I could but admire his terrible beauty, however. His black shining folds, his easy gliding movement, head erect, eyes glistening, tongue playing like a subtle flame, and the invisible means of his almost winged locomotion. The parent birds, in the meanwhile, kept up the most agonizing cry at times fluttering furiously about their pursuer and actually laying hold of his tail with their beaks and claws. On being thus attacked, the snake would suddenly double upon himself and follow his own body back, thus executing a strategic movement that at first seemed almost to paralyze his victim and place her within his grasp. Not quite, however. Before his jaws could close upon the coveted prize, the bird would tear herself away and apparently, faint and sobbing, retired to a higher branch. His reputed powers of fascination availed him little, though it is possible that a frailer and less combative bird might have been held by the fatal spell. Presently, as he came gliding down the slender body of a leaning alder, his attention was attracted by a slight movement of my arm. Eyeing me an instant, with that crouching, utter motionless gaze, which I believe only snakes and devils can assume, he turned quickly, a feat which necessitated something like crawling over his own body and glided off through the branches, evidently recognizing in me a representative of the ancient parties he once so cunningly ruined. A few moments after, as he lay carelessly disposed in the top of a rank alder, trying to look as much like a crooked branch as his subtle shining form would admit, the old vengeance overtook him. I exercised my prerogative, and a well-directed missile, 
in the shape of a stone, brought him looping and writhing to the ground. After I'd completed his downfall and quiet had been partially restored, a half-fledged member of the bereaved household came out from his hiding place and, jumping upon a decayed branch, chirped vigorously, no doubt in celebration of the victory. You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic. Bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Post-production and mastering by Counterweight Creative. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. Engineered, produced, and directed by Peter Medic. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. For more updates, we invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at 44from26.com or visit returnofthebirds.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Please visit returnofthebirds.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. Finally, any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Till next time, chirp away.